Welcome back to the Hemingway List's Year of War and Peace. Uh, I'm Andrew Lewis, your host of the podcast, Podcast Human, and we're talking about Book One, Chapter One. I've had a great couple of days so far, two days to be precise. I know we're only two days in, but I have had a very War and Peace theme year so far. Uh, the live streams have been going really well. I'm trying to get through a chapter per day with those, and I'm really grateful to those who have dropped in and, and hung out with me while I'm doing my translation work and chit-chatted with me. It's a good time. I'll be back on tomorrow at some point to work on the next chapter. Um, so yeah, feel free to uh, to come hang out. Now, book one, chapter one. There's a lot of context to build. There's a lot of questions around what's happening so far. All will be clear, especially even if it's not clear, you know, in this discussion. The next few chapters are set in this same setting. So Anna Pavlovna's soiree um, continues and, and more stuff happens. And as you go through it, it makes more and more sense, you know, like the longer you spend in that setting, the more you start to make sense of it. So even without the discussion, things would start to click into place. But the discussion should make sure we're really as far along as we can be with understanding what's happening. So Anna Pavlovna and, what's the other bloke's name? I always forget, um, Vasily, Prince Vasily. Those are really the two main people. Um, Brian E. Denton, who is a War and Peace superstar, Brian E. Denton writes a Medium article called A Year of War and Peace, and I think he's got a YouTube show as well about it, uh, and he compares each and every chapter he has a sort of meditation on that chapter and compares it to some famous um, philosophy, I suppose, Stoic philosophers and, and quotes by them. It's really good. It helps you really make sense of each chapter. So if you haven't seen Brian E. Denton's Medium page, have a look for that in the sidebar or in the links in uh, every day, in every post. Brian says, just wanted to say that ever since someone started this subreddit, which is I think three, this is the fourth year, uh, the new year and new cycle of reading War and Peace has become one of my favourite parts of the year. Have fun, everyone. Can't wait to see what you have to say. Um, who's this insane in the basement? Welcome, insane in the basement. Regarding the setting we open on, I'm thinking I need to strengthen my historical knowledge of the time period. My awareness of the political context of War and Peace is relatively limited, my driving interest in reading it being character writing. In that regard, the first chapter did not disappoint. Yeah, characters. Tolstoy does a great job of characters, I think. Um, he makes them feel really real, uh, to me at least, I think so. They can seem at times like sort of caricatures, you know, a little bit like cliches of themselves. But then they develop so much over the course of the book that, um, you know, halfway through the book, they seem like a very different person from who they were at the start. So there's really good character growth in the book. And I really, so a lot of my favorite characters in literature are in this book. Tolstoy had some really good tricks up his sleeve with characters because there's so many characters in this epic. There's, I think there's I think I read somewhere that there's like 500 characters in War and Peace or something like that. Not all main characters, obviously, but there is, you know, a couple of dozen main characters uh, and, you know, just hundreds of side characters or lesser characters. 
he had to be pretty clever about how he wrote them, you know. You don't want to be describing 500 characters. And so he's got some really clever little tactics that he uses to make you immediately get a sense of who the person is. Um, and I really like that. Um, in what experience I have with Tolstoy, says Insane in the Basement, I've come to expect really realistic and personal characterization for even less major players. For example, in Anna Karenina, he just dedicated tons of time to nailing down the personalities and internal worlds of Dolly and Stepan to the point that they could have books on their own while their actual role in the central plot is small enough for someone who only watched the movie might barely remember them at all. Yeah, that's that's exactly what he does. It's kind of almost hard to tell who are the main characters sometimes. Like Anna Pavlovna, for example, in this chapter. She's a relatively minor character in this book. Uh, she's definitely not a main character, but you really, you know, and you'll see this over the next few chapters, you get a very good sense of who she is. Um, and Vasily even too he's he is a, a main-ish character but not you know not tier A he's B tier main character I'd say um, by the way there's like 80 comments in today's discussion and a lot of them are quite long so I won't read through all of them um, in today's episode because only because you know we'll be here for a, a bloody long time if I do that um so if I don't read your comment, I apologize. Uh, I'll read. I'll read as much as I can, and I might skim some of them and, and read bits of them. Um, but yeah, I just apologize in advance for that. Now, all right, what was that? Where was I? Whose comment was I reading? Oh, insane in the basement. Anna Pavlovna seems so far like an interesting woman, possibly an inciting agent for the plot. Yeah, very much so. At the very least, a fine example of the classic powerful aging socialite, too wealthy to suffer any backlash from speaking her mind, but still conscious enough of societal norms to the elite to play those games. Yeah, you know what? You're not far off. My impression of her is she's part of the aristocracy. She's in that circle, you know, but she's kind of... Um, she doesn't have that much of a claim to it as time goes on, you know. Um, and so she's almost like throwing these soirees so that she can get involved in everyone's lives, like how she's playing matchmaker for, for Vasily's um, son, I think it is. Um, you know, so she's trying to sort of get involved with people in this upper crust. And she is part of it, but it's almost like she's trying to stay relevant. That's what she's trying to do, and that's why she's such a socialite. Um, Danadu, Dana Udu says, First, I must confess that I joined the reading group not being a Tolstoy fan, but nevertheless looking to change my mind. Yeah, hopefully. I warmed up to the subject of War and Peace by reading Isaiah Berlin's The Hedgehog and the Fox, an essay on Tolstoy's view of history, which I warmly recommend and which has put Tolstoy in a whole different light to me. Mm. Yeah. Um, Tolstoy's view of history is a massive theme of this book, and there's two epilogues at the end, and each of those epilogues has, I don't know, 20 chapters or something. So there's a good 40-ish chapters at the end of this book, which are basically just about Tolstoy's view of history. It's, to be honest, the worst bit of the book, but it's almost like the book ends, and then there's like 20 chapters at the end of kind of, epilogue a lot of people kind of think that, that that's not really part of the book but we will read it you know to bring it out to an end but you don't have to worry about that for about 340 something days so don't worry about it um 
I believe the first chapter does a wonderful job of introducing the important themes of stereotypes, interpretations, superficiality, and triviality of historical commentary. War is brooding in Europe, and the characters discuss this in the most mundane fashion at a social event. Anna Pavlovna's utterances are filled with half-digested sound bites and cliches. Austrians are like this, English are like that, and only serve as some sort of polite introduction to more pressing issues such as matchmaking for Vasily's younger son. Very, very cool. Um, Zook, oh yeah, well done, by the way. That's a really good um, sort of first post on this subreddit, Danadu. I hope you hang around. Let's do this whole year together, and it's a pleasure to have you here. Zukov17, um, I know this name. Uh, welcome, everybody. I'm a Year of Peace veteran, and I'm excited about this year with the Hemingway list taking over. It's going to be so much fun. Yeah, and by the way, on that, before I forget, I promised that the Hemingway list invaders would have some kind of a flair um, to show that they're from the Hemingway list. I'm working on that. I'm not very good at moderating subs in terms of like the the technical bits so I've, I've messaged the other moderators of this subreddit and we're going to try to figure out how exactly to do that so stay tuned it is going to be happening very soon um oh yeah another thing i was going to say before i forget is a thanks to someone i'm not sure who it was awarded a uh, an award a masterpiece award to um to my chapter my Aussie version of this chapter, so I do thank you. I've posted the whole chapter in the comments, so if you want to read the Aussie version, head to the comments for book one, chapter one, and you'll be able to see it. Uh, all right, where am I? Okay, I'm skipping all around these comments. I'm trying to do this quickly, and I'm actually doing it very slowly. This year, I'm planning to focus my reading around one key line slash passage and looking into the various translations of that key line and how they affect the story. This is Zukov 17, by the way. Anthony Briggs, Garnett, Edmonds, Dunnigan, uh, Maud, P&V. These are the translations I'm breaking down. Would love for anyone reading non-English translations to weigh in on any of these translated line comparisons further to further the thoughts. Each day I'll post a line scenario and each of the translations with a response that addresses the translation and my response to the discussion questions. Wow. Going above and beyond, Zukov. That's awesome. Now, you did in fact forget one very important um translation um you must have just uh, had a little a little mental blank there but there's the Ander Lewis translation ahem <laughs> um which I'm just opening up now because I'm going to give you the Ander Lewis translation of the specified line Anna Pavlovna speaking to Prince Vasily. Here's the Briggs. This is really interesting to do, by the way, to read the different ways in which the line is said in different translations. We'll start with Maud, actually, because that's the version we read. Can one be well while suffering morally? Can one be calm in times like these if one has any feeling? And that's Anna Pavlovna speaking to Prince Vasily. Briggs says, how can one feel well when one is suffering in a moral sense can any sensitive person find peace of mind nowadays garnett said how can one be well when one is morally when when one is in moral suffering how can one help being worried in times like these if one has any feeling edmonds said how can one feel well when one is one's moral sensibilities are suffering can anyone possessed of any feeling remain tranquil in these days 
Dunnigan said, How can one be well when suffering morally? Do you think it is possible if one has any feeling to remain calm in times like these? And P and V says, How can one be well when one suffers morally? Is it possible to remain at ease in our time if one has any feeling? And now, one last one. I don't have to actually find the line here. Um... Ah, oh, this is how I did it. Well, how good could I be anyway, suffering morally as I am? No one could feel good at a time like this unless they were an absolute psycho, said Anna. <laughs> so mine was a bit of a departure, actually, <laughs> in comparison with eight others. But the thing is with those eight others is it's clear that they didn't all translate it from Russian. It looks like they've all translated it from Maud and just reworded it. Um, Ward being the first, um, you know, kind of accepted translation. Um, I like mine. In chapter one, I did depart quite heavily from the text. Um, in some parts, not much, but tried to make it easier to understand. Anyway, um, really cool of you, Zukov, to um, to take that on and give us all those different translations. That's really good. One Eliza said, I am, uh, sorry, when reading Les Mis, I was really interested in the fashion. I was curious about Vasily Karagin's outfit. I found this page from the Victorian Albert Museum about a male Russian court dress. I assumed it was, oh, sorry, okay, and then Anna Pavlovna had a cough. I assumed it was tuberculosis, but this is not a romantic book. War and Peace is realistic, so it's just a common flu. It's going to be fun to compare and contrast the depictions of Napoleon from Les Mis. Very cool. Yeah, their dress, their clothes are just super posh, kind of, well, I guess they're French-looking, but I guess they're Russian-looking, but, um, yeah, they remind me of those, like, French aristocrats from the 1800s. Morv Al Marvel says, listening to you read your version, I think he's talking about my version, uh, while reading the Maud translation enhanced my understanding of the content. I'm looking forward to learning about Aussie slang in an accessible way. Setting up the context of where the chapter begins was helpful, too. Thank you. Um, thanks, yeah. I mean, that's one of the big things I'm trying to do with my version is I wanted it to be something that, like, a teenager would want to read, and if they did so, they'd enjoy it, um, and they'd also have read War and Peace, you know? That's kind of my goal with it, make younger readers read War and Peace to make it more accessible. So the language is very, very simplified. I think some translations are known to be more simplified than others and I think mine is the most simplified um, my favourite line from chapter one is he spoke in that refined French that our grandfathers not only spoke but thought in and with the gentle patronising intonation natural to an important man who had grown in society and in court um, Acoustic Eel says I agree about the accessibility of the Lewis translation when you read the Maud followed by the Aussie I was expecting to prefer the original but in listening to the Aussie, even for one page, it gave me two or three moments of, ah, oh, that's what he meant, that I didn't get from Maud or the Dunnigan that I'm reading. I didn't really understand what Anna Pavlovna's whole opening rant was until I heard you read it, revealing that she was just Joshin with Prince Vasily <laughs> Joshin. <laughs> uh, to that end, I wouldn't mind hearing you narrate your translation on the podcast. I'm reading a physical book while I listen, because otherwise I get distracted and lose the thread of the story, so I am getting both versions anyway. It's like reading 
with a little babble fish in my ear, we can get a normal translation or an audiobook of the normal translation anywhere, but yours is unique. Plus, the Aussie register is really more effective when it's spoken than when it's written. If people don't want to hear it, they can stop the podcast halfway through and read on their own, which some people have said they already do. Thoughts, anyone? Hey, um, thank you, Acoustic Eels, for those kind words. I, um, I appreciate that. I mean, I put a lot of effort into it. Um, so it's good to know that it's actually of value. I'll read today. You know what? Just for chapter two, I'm going to read my version. Um, just for just for today, we'll see how we go. And you're right. If people want to read, you know, the Maud one, it's it's available everywhere for free. So that's that's one thing. And also, if you're looking for a free audio book of it, you can listen to the original A Year of War and Peace podcast from um, a couple of years ago, which is quite easy to find around this subreddit. Uh, and you can listen to it there. So there you go. All right. So for today, I'm going to read my version. Trilingual fangirl. <laughs> Trilingual fangirl. Uh, said, yes, I agree. I like the Aussie translation as well. And if there's people who want to listen to a traditional translation, there are recordings on the Hemingway List podcast from about two years ago. Awesome. All right. Thanks, Trilingual fangirl, who I think... Oh, you've got a cool... You've got a flare that says Invader. I don't know how you got that, but I love it. So apparently one of the moderators does has done something. It's impossible it's possible to get the invader flare. I don't know how it's done. I'll find out by tomorrow for those who are wanting to get the same flare. Looks very cool. <laughs> We're invading this sub. Uh, okay. Oh man, there's so many comments today. And I wanna I wanna try to break down the chapter a bit more for people because I haven't done much of that yet. Um All right, so keen to get started. I'm unsure of Anna this far. In the first page, she seems a bit of a flighty socialite. However, as the chapter unfolds, it appears she has a lot more depth. I love that she informs Vasily to his face that everyone pities him for his son. Yeah, I love that bit where she's kind of like, I love your two kids. I know you've got three kids, and one of them's a dickhead, but I love two of them. Something like that, not in those exact words. Um, I was not expecting the humour, says Fengiusia. I've said that so wrong, I apologize. Fengusa. I'm just going to say Fengusia. I was not expecting the humor, but it was very welcome. I greatly enjoyed Anna Pavlovna's character. She seems like someone who's over seeming prim and proper, and this results in a looser style of conversation. Vasily, though, seems, Prince Vasily, seems a bit too scheming for my liking. My favourite line is the last line, I think, which I didn't get when I first saw this post, but when I read it in context of the chapter, I chuckled at. What's the... F what, wait, the first line? Wait, which one? Oh, the last line. What am I saying? <laughs> Sorry. Terrible podcast, all right? I'm only two days in and I'm already losing track. It shall be on your family's behalf that I start my apprenticeship as an old maid. Oh, yeah, so first she says, earlier she says, like, I'm too young to play matchmaker. You know, that's an old maid's game. Like, old ladies do that stuff. Um, and then at the end she's like, oh, because of your family, now I'm, I guess I'm an old maid too. It's on your family's behalf that I've started my career as an old maid. Mr. Cherpakar said, I didn't finish reading last year, but I do remember Tolstoy has some surprising sense of humour. The beginning wasn't as dry as I expected, but I've heard the war sections can be tough sometimes. Yeah, the war sections can be a little bit warry. Like, the action scenes are very cool. Some of my favourite moments of the whole book 
happen in the war scenes, but also there are the odd chapters here and there where it does get a bit bogged down in like military strategy, which can be a little bit dry. Acoustic Eels said, there's so many comments, I'm excited for all these readers. Acoustic Eels is an OG member of the Hemingway list and a Year of War and Peace guy, so if you're new, you're going to see this name around a lot. Excited for all these new readers. This is my second time reading. Looking forward to doing it in sync with the podcast this time. The last line of the chapter was, for me, oh, sorry, favourite line was, how can one be well when suffering morally? We read that one before. The lion snapped me back to the present for a minute. Sounds like what we have been saying all year with COVID going on. Napoleon invasion is in 1812, so what the COVID invasion is to, to 2020. When Anna Pavlovna said to Vasily, you're staying all evening, I hope, he should have responded, wish I could, but the British ambassador's got a Zoom soiree starting at eight. <laughs> um, Dagen Fish, this is round two for me, reading this chapter again. It's a marriage of plot that really stands out to me. Anatoly really sucks, so they're trying to get a sheltered young woman who knows nothing about him to marry him, banking on her being too miserable at, uh, to stay at home and Oh, too miserable at home to say no. They're trying to move her from one bad situation to another, as if marriage will magically make Anatoly less of a public problem for his father, Vasily. It's very short-sighted and totally lacking in compassion for their victim. Yeah, I know. But, uh, I don't know, it's kind of going from one bad situation to another. If they get together, she's um, escaping from her horrible home life. She's upset with her father. I think is what Anna says in this chapter, um, and shacking up with Anatole. Literature fans says, what are your thoughts on Anna Pavlovna? She strikes me as a wealthy busybody and makes it her business to know everyone else's business. Yeah, they're all wealthy, by the way. <laughs> is anyone, anyone um, even the ones who aren't wealthy, they're wealthy by comparison. Um First impressions of the setting. The setting is holding my interest. I like the fact that the book doesn't go into too much detail about the setting, but rather throws the reader into the middle of a conversation between two main characters. Bit of a sizzling start. Very cool. My children are the bane of my existence. Quote Prince Vasily. This line made me chuckle. Regular N. Gon says... War and Peace, I've been sort of following the Hemingway list since it spun out of this sub years ago, but university sapped the will and time to continue reading along. Seems like a great time to jump back on board, though. Well, welcome back. Buckle up. <laughs> this is going to be a big year, but a lot of fun. Anna Pavlovna strikes me as a good actor and skilled at political conversation posturing, even though the narrator harps on about the prince's demeanour and likens him to an actor several times, Anna seems to demonstrate it more deftly, though she does have a bit more to say than the prince. You know, I get the feeling with these two that they are both sort of playing the game, you know, playing the social game. They've been part of this high society for so long that they know the parts they have to play, you know, when talking to certain people and arranging certain things. Um, they know when they're when they have to ask a favour of someone and they know when they're being asked a favour of. And it's all a bit old for them. It's all a bit, you know, blasé. They've been been around the block a few times, you know. Um, and so, but you get the feeling that they've been friends for a while during this sort of thing, like they've come up in it together. So they kind of know what each other are about. That's how I feel with these two. I don't know a whole lot about this time in Europe other than it was the beginning of a great many revolutions and general upheaval. Seems like the fate of Europe, according to Anna, is at stake. 
I like this line that illustrates what I mean above and it has an understanding of social situations to play them. To be an enthusiast had become her social vocation and sometimes, even when she did not feel like it, she became enthusiastic in order not to disappoint the expectations of those who knew her. She was just known as being into it, being excitable. Um, (laughs) Someone else here has the... um, The... uh, (laughs) what's it called the flare defender of war and peace that's the opposite of the invader all right we've got our two armies set out guys go and figure out how to get this flare on your account you're either an invader or a defender you've got to pick a side and i love it totoboss says in the opening scene pavlovna is having a soiree in saint petersburg it's the summer of 1805 and by her own admission she is sick and has been coughing she's sent out notes to invite her guests because they, if they have nothing better to do, they should come to her soiree. She's a poor, sick woman. Um, if Anna had COVID, she'd be having a super spreader soiree. <laughs> no, you're not wrong. I don't know a lot about the history of Napoleonic Wars, but it is interesting that in the first paragraph of the book, Anna refers to Napoleon as the Antichrist. So at the start of this book, Napoleon is the Emperor of France, and the way he got that is by, um, during the French Revolution... Um, by the end of it, Napoleon was a great leader of the people, essentially. That's my understanding. And a military hero. And he was just, by now, by 1805, believed to be almost like a kind of god. And you'll see it happen in this book that when the French become the enemy and Napoleon is the leader of the enemy and young Russians are sort of going to war to fight him, they also idolize him and a lot of them look up to him as kind of a hero of like a war hero and this, you know, the best leader. And so there's this really weird thing where they're fighting against the enemy and they really revere the leader of that enemy. Uh, It feels quite real and human uh, and very interesting. Prince Vasily describes his sons Anatole and Ippolit as imbeciles and wants Anna to find him, to help him find a wife for Anatole. Anna thinks of the daughter of Prince Bolkonsky, a rich, stingy, difficult man for Anatole. Now, you might see this name Hippolyte with a H, Hippolyte. That's pronounced Ippolyte and sometimes in some versions spelt I-P-P-O-L-I-T. So if you're wondering if they're the same person, Hippolyte and Ippolyte, yes, they are. Um, oh, God, there's so many comments on... This is going to be a long podcast. Not every episode, by the way, will be this long. The typical episode will probably go for you know, 15 to 20 minutes once everything kind of settles down. But these first, you know, everyone's excited at the start and everyone's got a million questions. And um, I want everyone to feel confident going into the book. So I'm doing an extra effort tonight in this episode to to kind of go through as much as I can. There's quite a few things that I want to say. Uh, and I'm kind of waiting for a comment to jump off onto that sort of thing. If it doesn't happen, though, there's a few other things I'll point out at the end. Warren Kovofi, Kovofi, I'm just going to say coffee. Warren Kovofi said, excited to be here. I've been wanting to join this sub since uh, 2019. I'm glad to finally be part of the group. Just finished the first chapter. I will admit I had to read it twice to really get my bearings with all the translations and footnotes. I have read some classic Russian literature before, mostly Dostoevsky, and it takes me a little getting used to. Things click me much more during the second read through. Yeah, and there's a thing Tolstoy does. He has massive sentences that run on for ages. And you get the hang of them after uh, after a few weeks, I've got to say, at this pace, at one chapter a day. 
after sort of a dozen chapters or so, you do start to get the hang of the syntax of his sentences. But when you first start, like the kind of sentences don't seem to unravel correctly in front of you as you read them. You get halfway through a long sentence that goes for a full paragraph and then kind of realize you're reading it with the wrong inflection. And it can really jumble up your head a bit. But you do get the hang of it. And once you do, it's actually quite satisfying to read his long sentences. Thoughts on Anna Pavlovna, says Warren Coffey. One chapter in, I would say Anna seems to be an interesting character. My initial impression is that she is well-connected, smart, opinionated, wealthy, theatrical, and a busybody. Yeah, pretty spot on. I'm wondering what the deal is with her opinion of Prince Vasily's children, particularly Anatoly. I'm getting the feeling that perhaps arranging a marriage for Anatoly was the whole purpose of this soiree. One of, one of them. I think the soirees are basically for the purposes of those kinds of things, though. It's all kind of getting a favour from this person, you know, kissing this person's ass, setting up over here, you know. Um, and with a war coming on as well, um, the aristocrats are very connected in different ways to the military because the military is one of the very few careers an aristocrat can do, you know. They can't just get a normal job. Even being a sort of a doctor or a lawyer is is seen as kind of below them. So it's kind of managing massive estates or, you know, being like the earl or the duke of... A, of a, an estate or being a military person or being a government official or something like that. Those are really the only jobs they can do. And so with a war looming, there's a lot of kind of, um, kind of sucking up to people to try to get, you know, your son, this position in their battalion or whatever, you know, because they've all got kids who are the right age to start going to this war and they want to make sure that they're in a good position. And that good means different things to different parents as well. It's an interesting thing. Some parents think of a good position as like one where they'll get to fight and show their honour. And some of them think of a good position of one where they'll be relatively safe and not have to fight, you know. It just depends on the family and their values. Um, all right, let's keep moving. Sorry, I'm skimming through a lot of, um, of comments. Stevie573 says, looking forward to getting started. I wanted to read this book for some time, but the length was off-putting. This looks like a great community and will give me the impetus to keep going with such a long book. Yep, stick to it. Glad to have you. Cover the tuba. I said, read it. Love the minute observation of gestures, tone of voice, flattery, throwing in French words, all the little fake ways people perform their roles in society. That went fast. Good to be here from the Hemingway list, says Gwenardel. Hey, Gwenardel, invader. Make sure you get your invader flair. Anna seems like a good, like a fun aunt sort of character. She calls herself old maid. I took this to mean that she had never married or had children. I think you might be right. I think, yeah. Um, I thought the setting was interesting so far back in history from when the novel was written. Yeah, it was written about 50 years after it's set. 60 years, apparently. All right. Um, skimming right along. Sorry about that. I'm skipping the rest of your comment. Uh Samantha said that uh, Samantha Samantha Crew oh, Samantha Crew said Anna seems like a strong woman, sharp wit, natural intuitiveness. I have a feeling I'm going to enjoy her as we go through the book. Yeah, she's a, she is a good character. Um, Brett Peterson says my second attempt last year I got bogged down in the war section and gave up. I really enjoy Anna Pavlovna. She guides the conversation and totally shuts down the prince without him getting angry. Show a social skill I can only dream of. I love the setting in the posh parts of Russia. I didn't have a favourite line, but the others people mentioned were great. Dinosaur Lays Eggs says, 
this is my third attempt at reading War and Peace. First, I dropped off around May last year. I don't think I even made it to the end of January. I'm determined to stick with it this time. Yes, you can do it. Anna Pavlovna reminds me of some of my family members. Yep, we've all got those gossipy ones. Uh, don't have much of an opinion on the setting. Very cool. Keep moving. Yeah, stick with us. Dinosaur lays eggs. Um, and yeah, sorry I'm skimming through your comment. I've got a lot to get through. Excellent job with the audio book, sir. Thanks very much. I was sceptical about if I could understand which part of the audio was quoted and which was narration, but I love how you changed the pitch of sound a little to indicate that. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not the kind of audiobooker that does voices, so I do make an effort to make it very clear when different people are talking um, and when it is a quote. Uh, even as I read comments, you can tell when I'm reading a comment versus when I'm commentating. It's just something, I guess I've done 1,200 or something podcasts now. I've been doing this every single day for, this is now my fourth year. I haven't missed a day. And so, yeah, I guess I picked up a little skill. So thanks for noticing. Uh, I guess I have to trust audiobooks more. Haha, -ha, sadly I haven't received the physical book yet. It's on its way, so I just listened to your audiobook and I was pleased. You do know that you can find it for free online if you're looking for the Maud translation. Uh, it's quite easy to find. It's in the... Um, it's even in the top of this post that we're, where you're commenting. So far, I'm impressed with the starting chapter. I love how short it is. Yep, they're all short. And I read somewhere that War and Peace has the worst starting and ending of a big novel ever. I think it's got a great start. Um, I really love book one of War and Peace, which is the first couple of dozen chapters. Really love it. Um, Anna says the prince has two children and then, and then names them both. Plot-wise, I've only got one doubt about the children of Prince Vasily. Yep. It seems like two sons, but before this, Prince says, my daughter is coming to take me there. So he has two sons and a daughter, question mark. Um, yeah, so she says he has two charming children. It's meaning that the third one, she doesn't find charming. And I think she even says in the next sentence, like, I don't like your youngest or something like that. So he's talking about Anna. Oh, no, sorry. What's her name? Helen is his daughter. And she's the one that she says, oh, everyone's making a big fuss about her now that she's come out, sort of meaning now that she's like old enough to, to be suited to a man, I guess is what that means. Uh, and one of her boys she likes, but the third she thinks is a dickhead. And that's Anatole. That's the one they're trying to set up with a rich um, girl because um, because sort of just to get, get, her, get him out of uh, Vasily's hair. Continuing right along, Nicolax said, I tried. I finished the first chapter, but I was very confused. It's a hard one, and I should give it, give it the exclusive reading time that it deserves. Considering that I have other books to read, I think that I'll try next year. Good luck, everyone. Happy New Year. Ah, oh, Nicolax, you know, I reckon if you were to listen to this podcast even of us discussing chapter one, you'd get across it enough to keep reading. Um, but you probably won't. <laughs> Um, you know, I'm going to reply to you right now. Listen to podcast. Today's podcast. Where we discuss the one and see if that helps. All right. Commented. Sorry about that. <laughs> so excited to be back. Fell off last year. This is K Lamarie 92. Uh, around June, but ready to see this through this year. All right, let's do it. Stick with it. Um, 
Sunshine Cat says she seems to have made a lot of connections and keeps herself apprised in gossip. She also seems like seems loyal to what I assume is the Russian royal family. Speaking about Anna Pavlovna. I'm woefully unfamiliar with Russian history after 1900, so this unfamiliar context will be the challenge for me. You'll get the hang of it. But like I said in yesterday's episode, it's very, very grandiose on a massive scale. All right, keeping going, keeping going. Um, I've heard, says Altreed, that both of these characters are unlikable, so I guess we'll see how Pavlovna turns out, but in any case, I'm generally very much in favour of unlikable characters. Yeah, I mean, I, don't, I love these characters. I think they're great characters. They're not likable in terms... Like, they're not vying for people's affection, you know? They're not friendly. Um, but I love the richness of these characters and what they represent. And I think you'll get that more and more as you continue reading. Was a Pix says, I was absolutely captivated by the complexity of Anna. At certain points, Tolstoy described her as illustrious patroness, but juxtaposed this with her anxious intensity. I also appreciated her audaciousness because it seemed to match the severity of the times sublimely. Awesome. Awesome. Continuing. Mega Muncher says, Have fun reading. There are a lot of characters introduced at the beginning, but the main ones will start to surface and the relationships will become clearer. Great advice. Potato Cat 007 said, Gonna do it this year? All right, let's do it. Fruit Jelly Gummy Bear said, Looking forward to reading along with you this year. All right, let's do it. Grey Boff said, Happy reading, everybody. Um, continuing. If anybody has any tips of wiki articles or light reading that will help with the setting, it would be much appreciated. Um, there is a link. I left a link in one of my comments. It's something... Oh, it's in the sidebar as well. It's like 10 things to know before you read War and Peace or something like that. You find it in the sidebar. That is quite helpful. Um, okay, continuing, continuing. I'm going to skip some comments here. I do, I do apologize. Ship Peace says, One thing that bothered me about this book was Tolstoy describing Anna Pavlovna performing an action with the womanly and courtier-like quickness and tact habitual to her. Admittedly, I don't know a ton about Tolstoy. Is he sexist? Obviously, this book was written back in the 19th century when people as a whole were more sexist, but it's going to be a lot more difficult for me to get through this if I'm worried about the character of the author throughout the whole thing. I'm hoping his female characters are just as fleshed out and real as his male characters. No tropes here. I really hope Tolstoy didn't succumb to the characterization of women as the other uh, and made male the standard default. That said, even many modern books do this, so it's not like the book has explicitly feminist. I'm just hoping it's not sexist either. Any veterans out? Um, yeah, that's always a question with old any any old book, right? Is that you know at that time in that place, pretty much all over the world at that time, but in specifically in the aristocracy, there were male roles and female roles, and so when they would to say things like womanly or manly, it wasn't the same as saying it today where it's like a woman can do any role and a man can do any role. Unfortunately, it just kind of wasn't that way then. And I'm not saying that that's right, but to describe something using those adjectives was right because it was um, just describing it as it was. So I don't think Tolstoy was sexist at all. I think he was just using the adjective to describe her position in society as the society was at that time. It's just an acknowledgement of how things were then. 
Um, so it's really hard to sort of kind of put yourself in that mind space of like it didn't exist a different way kind of thing at that time. And yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate, but history is history. That's kind of the way it was. Uh, your question about the female characters, um, no, not at all. Like the, the best thing about this book is like Anna Pavlovna, even despite that description of her courtier-like quickness and tact habitual to her, she played the role of, of the sort of female socialite, which was a distinct role at that time, and she played it habitually. So she was kind of old hat at it. That's all he's trying to say, really. Um, but she's a great character, I think, even so far, you know. Um, you can see there's a bit of depth to her. She's got a bit of a schemey side. She's got a bit of a blasé side. She She's a socialite and a skilled one. And she's got her reasons for that. Um, there's really good characters in this book, both male and female. But that's not to say that the female characters are good people. There's really horrible females in this book, but they're written well, you know, and they're written believably. And just the same, there's really horrible males in this book, but they're written well and they're written believably. That's what how I feel. So when you see uh, a female character being despicable, which you will see in this book, it's not because he hated females, because there's it's just, it's meant to feel real. You know what I mean? females, males, everyone, we're all capable of despicable, horrible behavior. And so, yeah, he doesn't, um, he doesn't make anyone sort of the superhero, I don't think. Um, I would say equally amounts of my favorite characters are female in this book as well as male. I hope that puts you at ease, but look, it is an old book and there will be kind of mentions of male and female norms because those norms were very much the norm then. And I know now, in our current time, we're breaking those norms, but at that time, they were, well, that's why they're called norms, because they were norms, <laughs> you know what I mean? So um, you just kind of have to, uh, you have to kind of, ins what am I saying? Um, it's like almost like suspended belief or whatever they call it or, or being able to project yourself into that time and place. Very cool. Um, all right, look, we've talked a lot about the book. Here's one reference that um, I will point out from yesterday's chapter. Um, Nostovlit... Nost <laughs> There's one, I can't even remember the name. Nostov... Oh, okay, I'm just going to scroll up and find it. Uh, looking, Novosiltev. She asks about Novosiltev's dispatch. Prince says, don't get me started. What did they decide? They decided Bonaparte has burnt his boats and I reckon we're about ready to burn ours. That reference to burn his boats means once you've sort of crossed to the enemy land, um, it's like a kind of fabled military tactic that you burn your own boats so that you know there's no retreat from here. All right? You kind of... It's almost like burning your own bridge. So it's like once you get to the enemy land, you cut off your own ability to retreat. You commit to the war. And so Novosiltev is a dispatch who's allied with the Russian army. Um, and they're saying he's sort of committing to fight Napoleon. Not in Russia, but 
somewhere else. Um, another one, he says, what was it called? He talks about the bump of paternity. Oh, Lavatar would have said, I don't have the paternity lump on my skull, or I lack the bump of paternity. Um, Lavatar was a guy who um, <laughs> had a science, which has by now been de de debunked, but he could feel your skull, and depending on where all the bumps are on your skull, he could determine what characteristics those bumps represented. So a certain bump, he would say, oh, that's the paternal bump, that means you're going to be a good father. Or that's the cowardly bump, that means you're a coward, and he'd just touch your skull and, and figure it out. It was absolute nonsense. But there's a line where he says, Lavatar would have said I lacked the bump of paternity, saying that, you know, this scientist would have said I'm, I make a bad dad because he's talking about basically being a, a crappy dad or not caring much for his kids, I think it is. He's had it with them. He's kind of fed up with them. Um, all right. That's it. That's that chapter discussed well and truly. Let's read chapter two, shall we? I'm going to read you my version. <laughs> it's a bit different, so uh, hold on to your hats. Here we go. Are you ready? Chapter 2 of War and Peace. Ready, set, go. This is a long podcast, so I do apologize for that. Chapter 2. Heaps of posh wankers were at Anna's place by now. It was getting full as. There were all kinds of people there, some old, some young, some true blue, some shonky as, but all of them posh wankers. Prince Vasily's daughter, Helena, who was a bit of a looker, was there to take her dad to the ambassador's entertainment, so she was doled up to the nines. Hot as a tin roof in Alice. Speaking of smoking hot, Princess Balkanskaya was there too, a.k.a. the talk of the town. She was married now and was preggers. She'd been married since the previous winter and being knocked up didn't go to big do's anymore, just smaller receptions. Prince Vasily's son, Ippolit, the quieter Drongo, came with Mortemart, whom he introduced. Abbot Morio had come too, and a bunch of other people. To each new arrival, Anna Pavlovna said, Have you said g'day to my aunt yet? Or, do you know my aunt? And she dragged them over to a little old lady wearing a large bow of ribbon in her cap, who'd come swiftly in from another room, as soon as guests started rocking up. Anna would introduce each newcomer to her aunt, and then leave them to fend for themselves. Everyone who came performed the little ceremony of greeting the boring old aunt, whom they gave precisely zero fucks about, while Anna observed the interaction approvingly with a mournful and solemn eye. The aunt said the same thing to each guest, asking about their health, complaining about her own, then saying, thank God that Her Majesty's health was improving by the day. Each visitor patiently pretended to care, humouring the silly old so-and-so with the impeccable politeness before leaving the old woman with a huge sense of relief at having gotten that horse shit out of the way and not returning to her all night. The young Princess Balkanskaya had brought her work in a golden embroidered velvet bag. Her upper lip was slightly too short and it wore a delicate little mo, but somehow she pulled it off. She actually kind of rocked it, and when she occasionally drew her short upper lip down to meet the other, she looked even sexier. As usual with attractive women, that defect, the shortness of her fuzzy upper lip, kind of 
seemed like her own little beauty trademark. Everyone got all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed at the sight of this gorgeous Sheila, as so soon to pop one out, so full of life and health and that, and making pregnancy look so easy. Old men and glum, dispirited young ones who looked at her after being around her for a bit and having a chat with her felt as if they too were becoming like her, full of life and health and that. Anyone who spoke to her and saw her gleaming smile and bright teeth at each word started feeling like they were having a bloody ripper of a day. The little princess went around the table with quick, short, swaying steps, her work bag on her arm, and happily spreading out her dress, sat down on the sofa near the silver samovar, as if everything she did was a pleasure to herself and to all around her. I brought my work, she said in French, displaying her bag of sewing stuff and dressing all around her. But am I underdressed? Annette, didn't you say in your letter this was just a small reception? I hope you weren't playing tricks on me. And she spread out her arms to show off her short-waisted, lace-trimmed, dainty grey dress girdled with a broad ribbon just below the boobies. Sawyer's tranquil, Lisa. You're like the hottest chick here, easily, replied Anna Pavlovna. You know, said the princess in the same tone of voice and still in French, turning to a general, my husband is deserting me. He's nicking off to get himself killed at war. Tell me, what's the bloody point of this war? she added, addressing Prince Vasily. She didn't wait for him to answer. Instead, she turned to speak to his daughter, the beautiful Helena. What a firecracker this little princess is, said Prince Vasily to Anna Pavlovna. The next person to arrive was a stout, heavily built young man with close-cropped hair and specks on, the light-coloured breeches that were all the rage at that time, a very high ruffle and a brown dress coat. This absolute unit was the illegitimate son of Count Bezukhov, a very well-known grandee of Empress Catherine's times, who was currently on his deathbed in Moscow. The young man hadn't entered into either military or civil service yet. He was taking his sweet time a bit in that regard, but he had good reason. He'd only just got back from abroad, where he'd been educated. Tonight was his first appearance in society since his return to Russia. Anna Pavlovna treated him to her shittest greeting, a nod she saved especially for only the shonkiest people to enter her drawing room. But that nonchalant greeting was soon followed by a look of anxiety and fear as Pierre waded into the room, for he stuck out like a sore thumb. Not merely because of his huge size, he was rather larger than other men in the room, but also because of his unsuitable demeanour. His face betrayed shyness, but with cleverness there too, and his eyes were observant and natural. It was an expression which distinguished him from everyone else there. Good to see you, Monsieur Pierre. Nice of you to drop in on our poor old invalid, said Anna Pavlovna, exchanging an alarmed glance with her aunt as she ushered him over to her. Pierre mumbled, God knows what he said, and continued to rubber neck the room, now this way and now that, as if looking for something. On his way to the old aunt, he bowed to the little princess with a smile, as if pleased to see a close mate. Anna Pavlovna's alarm was justified, for as her boring old bag of an aunt got started on her speech about Her Majesty's health, Pierre turned away from her. Quickly, Anna Pavlovna detained him with the words, Pierre, do you know Abbot Morio? He's super interesting. I've heard of him, yeah. He has that scheme for perpetual peace. It is pretty interesting, but it would never work realistically. You don't reckon, 
rejoined Anna Pavlovna, and it was clear now she was trying to spark a conversation between Pierre and her aunt. She was even backing away from them as she spoke. She had hostess duties to attend to, but now Pierre committed a reverse act of impoliteness. First, he had totally ignored the old aunt as she spoke, and now he would continue speaking to another who wished to get away. With his head bent and his massive clumsy feet spread wide, he began explaining why he thought the abbot's scheme was just wishful thinking. Yeah, cool. Hey, tell me about it later, yeah? said Anna Pavlovna with a smile. Having finally escaped this young loser, who clearly had no idea how to behave in society, she resumed her duties as hostess, watching and listening over the room, ready to jump in and reignite any conversations that were going south, or subdue any that were getting too rowdy. She fancied herself like the foreman of a mill who ducked from machine to machine, checking that none of the spindles were making too much noise, or not enough noise, or were jarred or stopped altogether, and with a gentle prod, an interjected word here, a shrill chuckle there, she made sure the conversation machine hummed in a steady and proper motion. But while she went about her hostess duties, her anxiety about Pierre was pretty clear. She kept an eye on him when he approached the group around Mortemart to listen in on what was being said there, and an even keener eye on him when he passed to another group, whose centre was the abbot. Now, being that Anna Pavlovna's reception was the first Pierre had attended since returning from his education abroad, the young man was like a kid in a candy shop. He knew the room was full of intellectuals and didn't know which way to look, afraid of missing any clever bit of conversation going on. Seeing all the self-confident and refined expressions on the faces around him, he was always expecting to hear something very profound. At last he approached Abbot Morio. Here the conversation seemed interesting, and so he did that annoying thing that young people love to do, stood and waited for the right moment to hijack the conversation with his own opinion. All right, there we go. There's chapter two, and a Lewis style. <laughs> Hope you liked that. I hope that made some sense. It's really fun to read that. Is that crazy? I know I wrote it. Oh, I didn't write it. I translated it. Um, But I really do get a kick out of reading that version. Um, To that end, I will be online tomorrow again on the Launchpad Writers Club YouTube channel. Launchpad Writers Club. Um, Search that up on YouTube. That's four different words. Launchpad Writers Club. Um, and I'll go live, ring the bell so you know when I go live and do a bit of translating if you want to hang out and talk more in peace. If not, I'll see you tomorrow night or tomorrow uh, for the next chapter of War and Peace. Thanks for listening, guys. See you tomorrow.